0: Well, a good morning to you all. So glad you're here this morning, especially on this, this rainy morning. It uh, kind of reminds me of home, actually. If you lived in England, you'd be coming to church a lot like this. I want to start with a, a story about a guy we'll call Tony. And Tony had been coming to church for a while, and he was pretty regular, pretty faithful, coming every week. But he'd usually be the, the last in and the first out of the service. But one week he lingered around and he asked if he, he could have a word with me. And he said, you know, I've really been enjoying the services. I've really been enjoying uh, the worship's been great. The messages have been really good. And, you know, I love the things Jesus teaches and the miracles and all that. But, you know, I'm really, I'm just having a hard time accepting that, you know, Jesus is, is the only way. I mean, come on, that seems a little a little intolerant, a little uh, kind of exclusive. You know, I, I, Jesus sounds like a great guy, and he obviously did some amazing things. But, you know, it seems just a little bit narrow-minded to suggest that, you know, Jesus is the only way. I mean, I, I know plenty of really good people, and they do wonderful things for the community. They, they don't necessarily believe in Jesus, but, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I just can't imagine them not also, you know, being in heaven. I mean, it just... I don't know what Tony has has voiced there is um, a thought a feeling that many many of us struggle with many people in contemporary culture struggle with I would say people who are um, dedicated Christians who come to church week in week out it's still something that we struggle with a little bit this idea uh, these claims of Jesus is. and so uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to have a look at this passage. And it's was, it was funny, it was Devereaux mentioned earlier that th- this passage is so rich. There's so much in those, um, those small verses there. We could probably spend a year just on this passage, but don't worry, we're not going to do that. Um, but I do want us to look specifically at Jesus' claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. You know, what did Jesus say about himself? What did Jesus teach his disciples about his relationship with God, the Father? Does Jesus believe in ultimate truth? And so in this passage, Jesus makes three huge claims about himself. He claims that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Those are pretty grand claims, And and contemporary culture, the culture we live in today, challenges all three of those assertions by Jesus. It does this by declaring that there are many ways, there is no such thing as absolute truth, and that life is what we make it. So let's take a look at these three issues and contemporary culture's challenges to those issues. And what I'm going to do this morning is I'm I'm going to be throwing a few philosophical terms out there, okay? I'm going to try and break them down into layman's terms. I don't want your head spinning too much by the time you leave church. But I want to address these issues because whether you realize it or not, the society and the culture you are living in is immersed in these philosophies. And they actually... uh, dictate and guide your life and the lifestyle choices you make, whether you realize it or not. And so it's very important to be aware of these so that you can change certain behaviors and patterns in your life if they are destructive to your life. But you've got to know where they come from before you can do that. So the culture we live in today is basically immersed in a philosophy known as postmodernism. But we're kind of treading the line because postmodernism is a is a, uh, a pushback against modernism, and we're kind of living in those two worlds still today in the 21st century. Okay, now postmodernism itself is notoriously hard to define. Philosophers still can't really nail down everything about postmodernism, and we're we're still working through it. But here are some of the hallmarks of postmodernism. One of the things about postmodernism is. Um, they have a suspicion of meta-narratives. Okay, so that means grand overarching stories. So straight away, postmodern-minded people are going to be very suspicious of the Bible. Because the Bible is a meta-narrative. It's been described as God's history of redemption. It starts with creation, leads to the fall, how we fell into sin, and then takes us through God raising up a holy people who brings forth Jesus and how Jesus brings redemption to the world. And we end up in the book of Revelation where Jesus will finally make all things new. It's an amazing story. It's the greatest story ever told. But it is a meta-narrative. And postmodernism is naturally suspicious of big stories. Now on the flip side, postmodernists love smaller stories. They love personal accounts. And this is actually a positive thing for when we want to share the gospel and when we want to share how Christ has changed our life. This is actually a good thing. But postmodernism has a a family tree, if you like. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at some of the the siblings, if you like, of postmodernism. So the first sibling I want to talk about is what we call pluralism pluralism. Um, You might have heard many people say, we live in a pluralistic society. And we do. And the the good and positive things about pluralism is that it does allow for freedom of thought and expression and different ways of of worshipping God. So there's some very good things about pluralism. And in fact, it's essential to a democracy. If you want to live freely, you've got to have pluralism. But, Parallelism also claims that there are many ways to God. That it doesn't have to be Jesus. It can be Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism. It can be any method of spirituality. Essentially, they all lead to the same God. I hear this a lot as a hospital chaplain when I'm, I'm praying for people. Of course, as a chaplain, you're, you're a multi-faith chaplain. You're working with people of all walks of faith. And I, you know, when I ask them, can I pray for you? I make clear to them, I say, you know, I'm I'm a Christian minister, um, do you mind, are you comfortable if I pray in the name of Jesus? That's majority of the time, people, even if they're not a Christian, say, that's fine, it's all the same God anyway. And that's a reflection of this, this pluralistic mentality that many of us have. It does challenge what Jesus says here. It's important to remember that. And it also makes you wonder if there are many ways. Why did Jesus have to come? Why did he have to die on the cross? If there were if there were many ways, then why did God have to send his one and only son? We have to keep that in the back of, of our minds as we think about pluralism. The second sibling is called relativism. Okay, so we've got lots of isms this morning. And in a nutshell, what relativism says is there's no such thing as absolute truth. It doesn't exist. So you've probably heard people say things like this well, that's your truth. This is my truth. Okay? Well, you believe that, but I believe this. And it doesn't really matter because, you know, as long as nobody gets hurt, you have your truth and I have my truth, and the whole world can just get along. It's an interesting philosophy that pervades our culture, isn't it? Okay, because it's, it's, coming, it's coming from an honorable angle in the sense that it, it wants to respect other people's beliefs. Okay, and I'm, I'm number one for that. We need to respect other people's opinions and treat each other with love and respect. But if you look at relativism and you take it to its logical outcome, what it does is it pulls the rug out from being able to declare that anything is really true. So, for example, it's raining outside right now. But somebody might say, well, no, it's not. I don't think it's raining. That's my truth. The fact is, if you walk outside, you're still going to get wet. It also, when you think about it, when you remove the rug of truth, how do we have laws? Who who decides why murder is wrong? or why stealing is wrong. If there are no absolute truths, I may have a perfectly good reason for why I murdered somebody. I might say, well, it's my truth. They actually deserve to be murdered because they really annoyed me. Somebody else, that's not going to work for that person's truth, is it? So, relativism is is an interesting uh, concept, but again, when we think through logically where it ends, it undergirds truth And really pulls out uh, our whole definition of reality. The third one is we are in a culture of, um, I branched these three together, tolerance, tolerance, inclusivity, and political correctness. And they kind of all gel together, okay? You know, the, the supreme virtue in today's age is tolerance and inclusivity, okay? We hear that all the time, don't we? We are tolerant. We are inclusive. We aim to be this, 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 and this. The interesting thing about tolerance is true tolerance has to tolerate beliefs they don't agree with. Okay? So it's not truly tolerance if you only accept people into your club who believe and think the same way you do. And this is what we see a lot of the time. Is you are tolerated as long as you fall into the program. Um, you know, a classic example of this might be, for example, you probably read stories, say, about a Trump supporter who goes to eat in a restaurant and they're wearing a "Make America Great Again" baseball hat, and they get kicked out of the restaurant because the owner or the servers or whatever don't agree with their political viewpoint. Well, that's an example of of. The idea of tolerance gone astray, because whether you agree with Trump or not, we should be able to tolerate different views, correct? And unfortunately, what we're seeing is a one-sided kind of um, imbalance as far as tolerance goes. Um, D.A. Carson, who's a, um, uh, a New Testament scholar and theologian, he, he had a book he wrote called The Intolerance of Tolerance. And in it, he he, he said there's two definitions of tolerance, an old definition and a new definition. He said the old definition was the acceptance that other views exist. And he said the new definition is the acceptance of all views. So do you see the difference there? It's a very subtle shift that's happened in culture. The first, the old definition is the acceptance of that other views exist but it's not saying all views are valid. It just says they exist and you are entitled to have those beliefs. The new definition, acceptance of all beliefs, says that all beliefs are equally valid. And of course they can't be because they contradict each other. But nonetheless, this has become the standard definition of tolerance. Inclusivity is another one. We are so inclusive. Well, ironically, declaring yourself inclusive is an exclusive statement. Because it excludes people who don't believe in inclusivity. So so it contradicts itself. We do want to be inclusive, but ultimately, just like tolerance, there are going to be people who are excluded because they don't think like you think. And then, of course, the last one is political correctness, which I'm sure we're all a big fan of. Political correctness pervades our whole society, doesn't it? And it was the, uh, the comedian Bill Maher, who gave a great definition of political correctness. He said, political correctness is the elevation of sensitivity over truth. It's the elevation of sensitivity over truth. And we see that happening all the time in our society today. People's feelings and fears of being offended trump the truth of an issue. We see it happening all the time. So there we have those three again. Pluralism. Pluralism. Relativism and tolerance, inclusivity, PC. And so pluralism challenges Jesus saying he's the way, because it says there are multiple ways. Relativism challenges Jesus' claim to be the truth, because it says there's no such thing as absolute truth. And tolerance and inclusivity and political correctness challenges Jesus saying is the life. So if those three... Are the let's call them the the daughters of postmodernism. Let's talk about the sons of postmodernism and also of modernism. And these would be science and technology. Now for the record, I am I'm not anti science, I'm not anti technology. I think both of them, when used in the right way, are amazing gifts from God. And science and technology have enabled us to accomplish so much. They've uh, have allowed so much uh, healing to go on, so much study to go on, to help us learn so much more about ourselves. So I am not about to bash science and technology at all. But like any good gift of God, they can be abused. So if we look at the realm of science, many view science as the only gauge of what is real and the only proof of truth. So there are many people who, who, who will say that science is the be-all and end-all. If you cannot prove it scientifically, then it cannot exist. It cannot be true. And ironically, this is actually a, a rather fundamentalist religious view of its own, and it's called scientism. You know, so if you just put an ism on the end of a word, you get a whole new definition of something. But it really is its own thing. And it basically says science is the answer to everything and can tell us everything about life. Um, Which is, the funny thing is, you know Stephen Hawkins, the uh, um, physicist who recently uh, died. In one of his last books, one of his opening statements was, philosophy is dead. Which is very ironic when you think about it because he's making a philosophical statement when he says that. That's not a scientific statement to say philosophy is dead. But does science, can science give us all the answers to life? I believe it can give us some answers to life, but there are many parts of the human condition that science cannot answer, cannot address. It's not designed to answer these questions. Let me prove it to you. Um, if I just, you know, just by a show of hands in the room, if I ask you, who believes love is real? Who believes love exists? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, most of us, right? Most of us, if we're lucky, have experienced love. We've been a, um, a receiver of love and a giver of love. But can we empirically measure love? Can I say to you, your love weighs six pounds, and my love weighs ten pounds, therefore I love you more. Can we say... My love is very tall and smells of bounced dryer sheets. But your love's rather short and has a a faint whiff of mildew. Of course we can't. Because love can't be measured by the five senses necessarily. That's just one example. But there's a whole range of humanity of the human condition that science can't address. And that's okay. It wasn't meant to address those things. That's why we have other... Things to complement science to complete the picture of who we are as creations of God. You know, I um, I was talking to a piano student of mine a few years ago. It's a fifteen-year-old, pretty uh, pretty smart guy, good piano player. And one time he was sharing with me that he was an atheist. And so I said to him, "I said, really, How, you know what?" What's made you, you know, have you always been an atheist? And he said, no, I just, you know, it gradually happened. And I, I said, okay, so tell me, what happened? Why, why are you an atheist? I'm really, I'm really interested by this. And he just very bluntly replied, biology class. And it really struck me as um, quite a sad, sad story, really, because what, it, what it's shown is that, that there's only one, one worldview being conveyed And that is that we are just a mindless product of evolution. Mind plus chance plus matter. And that's all we are. That we're not actually part of a a bigger creation that has a creator and a designer. But that we're just a mass of of uh, molecules. And of course, I believe this is a big reason why, especially the young in our culture today, have a, a desperation and a hopelessness about them. Because they've been indoctrinated to believe that they are not the products of an amazing, loving creator, but are just a mindless blob. And of course, this is going to define your purpose in life. If you feel that you came from nothing, in the back of your mind, you're knowing, I'm just going to be returning to nothing. So what's the point to life? We have to counter that as the church, as followers of Jesus Christ. We have to let people know but there is a hope in life that is greater than anything that can happen in this life. And then we move to technology. It's so kind of like the, the brother of science. And again, there's some amazing things that technology gives us. But author Alan Noble says this. He says, and I quote, Modern media technology focuses largely on two goals. Capturing our attention... And gathering our data. Think about that. That's the main goals of technology. Capturing our data. And capturing our attention. He goes on and he says, Innumerable gadgets, websites, channels, streaming services, songs, films, and biometric wristband vie for our attention. Without our attention, their existence is unjustified. It's not just that every spare moment is fought for, our technology covets every glance. Flashing lights, vibrations, bells ringing, little red dots, email alerts, notifications, pop-up windows, commercials, new tickers, browser tabs, everything is designed to capture our attention. Are you having trouble concentrating a bit this morning, some of you? Is it hard to sit through a sermon that's about 25-30 minutes long? It is, isn't it, sometimes? And it's because we are becoming more and more distracted. We have our cell phones, our smartphones, and we continually to have to scroll through them, check emails, check Facebook, check Twitter, check whatever Instagram, whatever it is that is your, your poison, if you like. We're becoming more and more distracted. And so as a result, it's harder and harder to talk about the gospel with people. Because here's what's happening all this constant scrolling. And constant check-in and constant distraction. Oh, what's that new thing? Oh, what's that? What it's doing is, it is actually turning us in to a people that have lost the ability to think deeply about anything. We'd rather get distracted. We don't want five minutes alone with our own thoughts. We're scared to go there. We'd rather distract ourselves. And so, this is a challenge for us if we're going to share the gospel because... The gospel is something that has to be deeply thought about. The gospel, it can't really be understood in a soundbite. Some people do get it that way, but ultimately it's something to be meditated on and digested for the rest of our lives. So why should we believe that ultimate truth exists? Well, first of all, Jesus declared that he is the way and the truth and the life. Jesus himself declares himself to be co-equal with God. Listen to again what he says in verses 9 through 12. He says, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is saying, when you look at me, you are looking at the Father. We are co-equal. He is in me and I am in him. You know, it ultimately comes down to this. Either Jesus is telling the truth about himself, or he's power crazy and a disturbed lunatic. That's really the only options you have. In fact, C.S. Lewis says it way better than I say it. Let me read a quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says this, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis continues, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We actually insult Jesus when we say, well, I think he's a great moral teacher, but that's all. That's not what Jesus claimed about himself. We have to remember that. So how do we respond to all this? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, the first way we respond is in humility. We have to humble ourselves. It takes humility to say, yes, Lord, I believe you. Despite what everything culture around me tells me and teaches me, I believe you are the way, the truth, and the life. It takes humility to acknowledge that there is ultimate truth and that it exists in and through God. Jesus himself asserted that absolute truth exists, so we should accept that absolutely. We should also live our lives in a way that reflects our belief that Jesus is Lord. Do you really do that? I find myself being convicted. I'm a pastor, right? And I believe Jesus is Lord. And yet, often I ask myself, am I really living my life in light of that knowledge? I think if we actually lived our lives really believing Jesus is Lord of everything, everything in our lives, our lives would actually look very, very different. So, in conclusion, I know you love to hear those words. Did Jesus essentially say, in a way, it's my way or the highway? Well, yeah, he kind of did. And if Jesus was, you know, the ironic thing, if Jesus was walking the earth today, by today's standards, he would be bombarded with insults and abuse from the elite news outlets and social media would just would just be on fire with outrage and offense. Imagine this, some guy showing up and said, guys, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you want to get to God, if you want to see the Father, you've got to go through me. Can you imagine the uproar on Facebook, on Twitter. You know, it's ironic, but I thought, I was thinking through this in the the culture we are living in today, and here's what I think people would label Jesus if he made the claims he made in scripture. First of all, he would be labeled a misogynist because he's a man making these claims. Secondly, he'd be declared a racist because he's a Jewish man making these claims, Thirdly, he would be declared a prude and out of touch and an enemy and oppressor of sexual freedom because he taught and advocated for sexual purity before marriage. He'd be labeled intolerant because of his exclusive claims, and he'd be called a hater and a liar. He'd be labeled a bigot for declaring that somehow he had the only real grip on truth. And of course, if all else failed, he'd be declared mentally unstable. Those are just a few of the labels Jesus would get today if he was walking the earth as we speak. But here's the thing, nonetheless, despite all that, if Jesus was here, he would not, and he did not stop proclaiming the truth. It was actually Jesus' truth claims that got him killed. That's what took him to the cross. I'll leave you with this thought. A, A missionary friend of mine told me how one time he was talking with some Buddhist monks, and he explained that their religion all others were essentially about what humankind can do to reach God. And that's really what most other religions, you know, if you go to Buddhism or Islam or you name it, it's all about what can I do to reach God? How many, what can I do? What are the good deeds I can do that will outweigh my bad deeds so that God will accept me, that he will accept who I am? They're climbing the mountain to get to God. Well, here's where Christianity is different. God comes down the mountain to meet us. And he says, it's not about what you can do. It's not about how many good deeds you could do. You don't need to do those for me to love you. I already love you just as you are. Just recognize my son, Jesus. And I will see Jesus in you. What about if I told you that our God, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ, our God is different. He comes down the mountain to meet us. And with a God like that, why wouldn't you want it to be his way? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you didn't leave it to us to come up with a solution to somehow come to you. But Lord, that you knew in our desperate situation that you had to come to us. And Lord, we know this is because of your great, great love for us. Lord, you gave us the most precious, most valuable thing you could possibly give us and that was your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you help us to understand that truth this morning, Lord? Would you, would you somehow bring it through the fog of postmodern uh, philosophy Lord, would you make it clear for us that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Speak to our hearts this morning. Remind us of your great, great love and help us to come to the truth through Jesus Christ. Amen.